Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. Hey, and we're trying out some new equipment today. Got a new computer. The other one was, I think the only thing holding it together was malware. So, uh, episode 173 is our inaugural episode with the new computer. So, we'll see how it does. But, uh, anyway... Uh, yeah, ever since goofing up the uh, <laughs> the episode numbers like two episodes ago, I've been kind of kind of watching that a little more closely. You know, it's it's amazing. You can get into thinking about what you're going to say so much that a lot of times the details will just escape you. But that is no real excuse. I have to really get on and uh, make sure that this stuff is right. So. Anyway, uh, got down to it. We're going to have upcoming a special episode. Um, I've talked, I got a very generous offer from friend of the podcast. He, of course, grew up in some difficult times in Argentina. Um, big civil unrest that I've told, I've told you, you know, snippets here and there. Um, he and I are going to get together and we're going to figure out something and we're going to, we're going to put something together. Um, if I can figure out the technicalities, I may even ask him if he wants to call in and record or something. Um, very, very interesting to get the perspective of someone who is not from here on what's going on now and what happened to them in the past. Um, I think that's a very, very good, um, perspective to look at it's very very good experience um you know and i always enjoy that you know the friend of the podcast has always he's been a great friend of mine and one of the awesome things about it is you know he kind of reminds me now and again like um you know he'll say you know the browning high power is really the best one of the best nine millimeters going and i say yeah you're right you know and i go dust mine off and and lo and behold you know he he has that perspective it's not 1911 or some other centric focus that he has has a completely different set of things um one of the things that i really enjoy was um i'd had a uh, 765 argentine rifle for years and i never really did much with it um i enjoyed it i liked it but he really kind of opened up my eyes to what a good cartridge that is and um i do have to throw out uh, I've criticized them in the past, and, and I'm still not 100% on board. But at least CNR Arsenal has really covered that rifle in a World War One context with its use by the Belgians and then later the Turks. I did not know till I watched that podcast that actually the Turks... Um, that was their official cartridge for until really they started getting massive German aid during the uh, First World War. Then they changed it to eight millimeter, um, and that was not any fault of the 7.65 um, by 53 cartridge. It was just matter of German logistics overwhelming uh, what they had, so they had to use what they were able to get from the Germans. So his perspective will come in very very handy. Uh, a couple of things I want to talk about, and I'm going to do some. I'm going to do some groundwork for that today. But some of the um, some of the things I'd like to talk about, we'll probably talk about again. But uh, first, I'll get some get some of the usual business out of the way. You know, I mean, first of all, when the Secret Service 
the people who are charged with the safety of the president, the White House grounds, and all that stuff. It's not like they're just bodyguards of the president. They're in charge of a huge security apparatus. And that apparatus is arguably the finest in the world. And so when they say, we can't figure out how this, you know, baggie of cocaine got into the White House, and, you know, that's our, that's just our um, investigation. We can't figure it out, so, yeah, case closed. You know, when they say that, they're lying. Um, they are absolute. They have now become just like the FBI, just like the Justice Department, just like the IRS, just like the BATF. They've become a party-centric cover-up machine. And the only reason they would cover this up, the only reason they would lie about it, is because you-know-who brought the stuff in. Don't tell me in the most heavily guarded house in the world that one of the points of restricted access has no camera coverage and nobody know nothing. Um, I can tell you this right now. Uh, I've worked in places that have had phone coveys for exactly that reason, because you're not allowed to take them into classified areas. And I can also tell you if they found, and, and a lot of times these coveys lock. Okay, sometimes they're open, sometimes they lock. What these were, I assume this one probably closes and locks. How these things normally work is, for a very small office, they might have cubbies. You can just, they're open, you just put them in. Look like something you'd see in a kitchen, you know, just little cubby holes. Most of them, though, have a lock and a key. It's like a miniature bus locker. You put your phone in there and whatever else you put in there. <laughs> your cocaine, I guess. I guess that's what else people put in there. You put your cocaine and your phone in there. And then you, uh, you close it and there's a key hanging off the lock. You undo it. And then when you come out to get your phone, you unlock it, get your stuff out, and leave the key in the lock. So the next person can come along, and and uh, they can put their phone and cocaine in it, I guess. But we all know who is the... Now, just to get to that level, you have to be investigated. And I think you probably, uh, in many cases, uh, have to have a polygraph. And during that polygraph, they ask you if you are a drug user, if you've used drugs... And if they counter deception, uh, guess what? You don't get access. So the people who are in and around and would be going in and out of this thing are probably very highly investigated and cleared persons, except for maybe, you know, the family of the president. And somehow, I, even though I don't really like Dr. Jill very much, I don't think, I, don't, I just don't see her using cocaine. I, I just don't see that happening. So therefore, um, yeah, guess who that leaves? And guess who was hanging around the White House a few days before this? Now, they've all tried to lie and say, oh, no, no, no. You know you know what? It's like the old Josie Wales. Don't piss down my back and tell me it's raining. It's bullshit. They know exactly who left it. I guarantee they have footage of something. And if they don't have it on those cubbies, they're crazy. And I'll also tell you this. If... Somebody came there and found a magazine of 9mm ammunition in one of those cubbies. This w they would figure out exactly everything. Exactly everything. Because, uh, you know, baggies, they'll have fingerprints on it. They, they know who did it. They probably have fingerprints. 
They could take fingerprints off the cubby. You know, because, face it, face it, here's the, real, here's the reality. The reality is, if someone comes up, we all know who that someone is, and puts his phone in his, and decides, well, I don't really want to have this, this uh, blow on me, so I'll just put it in there too. Or maybe he's not exactly of a sound mind, maybe he's under the influence and he just kind of puts it in there. Then he goes and does whatever he does. Then he comes out, gets his phone, um, and forgets about his blow. Um, you know, the next person who comes out to use that cubby isn't going to say, oh, wow, look at that. Well, I'll just use the one somebody else put their cocaine in it. So, Or they're going to say, well, I'm not going to use this one. It's got cocaine in it. No. Um, and they didn't even know it was cocaine at first. Remember, it was a suspicious white powder, which always reeks of anthrax or some other sort of sort of threat. So, you know, here's my deal. Um, obviously, obviously they know who used that cubby. They could, they, they could, there's got to be some fingerprints on it somewhere that they could use. There's got to be fingerprints on the blow. There's got to be video surveillance. They've got to have logs of who was in and out that day. They, they know this. They, they could, but just by process of elimination, take somebody go, hey, you know, Mr. Smith, come here. Who is in the meeting in there with you? And he names off five guys. Well, how many people were in there? Well, probably 12. So they got five names from him. So they start, they go to those five names. Who else was in there? And gradually they'll have a list, a complete list, of who was in there during the time frame that the blow was, uh, was deposited. So the fact they say they didn't know, they're lying. It, it goes into a larger picture. And that is our, our government is collapsing and we are not paying attention to it. Um, you know, the spending, the inflation. Now, now we're getting, you know, people are trying to tell us, oh, inflation isn't bad now. Oh, it's been on the downslide for years. They're liars. They're complete liars. Go price anything and you can see what a liar they are. Um, so yes, we do still have inflation and it is hurting us and it hurts the least of us the most because a mother buying food for children has to pay the same high price as I do. Okay? Same high prices that somebody who's well off pays. You know, some guy above me, some guy who's who's uh, and somebody above them who's rich. They they don't discount food. So it hurts everybody. Fuel hurts everybody. Um, especially if you're commuting to, you know, your job at Amazon or your job at uh, you know, UPS as a package handler or something. The government is collapsing. They can't, they've lost telling us the truth. They've lost impartiality. They're backing a foolhardy war in a place called Ukraine. Now, I feel very sorry for Ukrainians. I mean, they don't deserve to have their country trashed. Um, it's all political. It's, it's all geopolitics. It's well above the man in the street. Yet, that's who always pays the price. Um, whether they're a soldier or a civilian or something else. Same, same thing in Russia. Uh, there's been obviously double dealing. We've given them all kinds of money and, and weapons and things. A lot of that money's kind of unaccounted for. And the weapons have been squandered. I mean, uh, I was reading a report this morning. We gave them 100 Bradley fighting vehicles. 34 of them are trashed. Because the Ukrainians, even if it's something simple, they can't really repair it. 
but they, these are combat losses. And face it, when an armored vehicle is a combat loss, it's usually toast. Usually the hull has been compromised to the point where there's no repairing it. It's now just a big heap of scrap metal. And there's very few usable parts on it because um, they, they naturally will burn, um, even with the fire suppression systems. Or if they get hit multiple times, that happens on the battlefield. You know, you can knock something out once. Somebody else who didn't see you knock it out sees the vehicle and they shoot it again from hundreds of yards away from you. So a lot of these things have probably been hit multiple times. Um, or it goes through a minefield, it hits a mine, it stops, and two or three, you know, anti-tank weapons hit it because people see it and they shoot because that's what you do. So these things are probably trashed and totally gone. Uh, some of their leopard tanks are trashed and totally gone. They had four of the mine clearing tanks and two of them are wiped out. So yeah, this counteroffensive is not going, we are backing, we are keeping a conflict going. We're keeping the killing going when we all know how this is going to end and it's not going to end really well for the Ukrainians. You know, they should negotiate their way out. Yeah, you can keep you can keep the areas where all the Russian people live and try to preserve the rest. Instead, they may completely collapse or worse, draw us into a large Eastern European land conflict which we have no hope of winning. Uh, all of our because our government is collapsing. Our our military is collapsing in front of our eyes. DEI and the abysmal readiness, the lack of any esprit de corps, the lack of recruiting. Hey, if you don't have people, all you've got then left is piles of equipment and vehicles. So if you can't recruit people, you're in real trouble. You don't really have an army then, do you, if you don't have people? Um, and when I say army, I mean armed forces. I mean, ships won't sail. They'll sit in, they'll sit in the uh, port. And as we've seen, and the Navy is kind of susceptible to this, when they do sail and they don't have very good crews because they're either undermanned or undertrained or they've lowered the standards so they don't have as good a people on them as they need, then you get these accidents where, sh where ships bump into each other and bump into things and all kinds of stuff. Um, the, all this kind of stuff happens. So we have to be very, very careful on how this is, this is going to work. Our military is crumbling. You know, maybe our Air Force is still in pretty good shape because pilots like to fly and, and the Air Force is good public relations and all the rest of it. And, and uh, you know, it's a, and speaking about DEI and the Air Force, the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs is a black general. And I don't have a problem with that, except he said all the wrong things. He, he basically talks about how diversity is our strength. You know, goes into all this diversity stuff. Okay, fine. Everybody kind of gets that. Everybody has gotten that. They want to take it to an extraordinary level where diversity basically exceeds, com it replaces competency. We can't have that. Can't have that. Um, another, another area he talked about is, he goes, we're going to learn the lessons from the Ukraine war and apply them so that we're ready to fight. Okay, that on the, that on the top sounds good. The problem with that is it's the age-old military problem of fighting the last war. 
what you need to do is say, yeah, we can look at these lessons, but how do they apply to the future? What does the future battlefield look like? What, how will this shape what we will see? Because we won't see it again. You won't see a replay of the Ukraine war, just like you haven't seen a replay of Iraq or Afghanistan. Even if we undertook those operations today, they would look starkly different than they did in 2001 and 2003. So again, we got another general who's going to going to fight. And, and I gave this example, I think it was last podcast. The, the British got clobbered in, in the Boer War 1898. They don't like to admit it, but they had to kind of win it by attrition and, and just, you know, mass production of weapons and putting a lot of people in the field. They had to win it that way. Okay, when you looked at the, and, and the lesson they took from it was, our Lee Enfield is crappy, so we need a replacement. And they came up with the P-13, which was a Mauser-style rifle that, you know, in many ways was similar to what the Boers had. It had a lot of, a few other, you know, changes, and, and, sm- and it differed in details, but fundamentally it was the same type of rifle. Well, that's, then World War One happens. They don't have the ability to put that into into production, so they go to war with their you know they, they had product improved the Lee Enfield and finally got the short magazine Lee Enfield, and that turned out to be just fine, because the conditions in World War One were vastly different from the conditions on the Velt in South Africa. So if they had had the P thirteen, I'm not sure that it would have been bad or it would have been negative but it wouldn't have worked any better than the short magazine Lee Enfield they came up with which actually holds 10 shots which you know we've debated on how fast you can actually load the thing and all the rest of it but what I'm saying is the weapon that was designed based on their experience in the last war would have been insufficient in the next war and that's the danger we have when somebody says at their confirmation hearing in front of the Senate. And, and you know what? Tommy Tuberville, who I never, he's some kind of football coach, became an Alabama senator. I don't, I don't know much about him. But he was holding up all these, and I think he still is, he's holding up all these nominations. And I thought, well, that seems to be an odd thing to do. Why would you do that? It's because the U.S. military is taking your tax dollars, and when a service member... A female service member needs an abortion and it's in a state where there's some sort of restriction and there's very few states where it's completely outlawed I don't know that there's actually even any but if it's outside the law in that state meaning you know the time frame they will pay and I guess you can do a travel voucher and all that to travel to a state where the pr- procedure is legal they're taking our tax money and doing that I think that's ludicrous and so does he, and that's why he's stopping all that. But it doesn't it doesn't show you that that you know our government is not in the best of shape. In many ways it's collapsing. The fact that people entertain the fool notion of reparations and, and they're actually they're stirring up a populace. The worst thing you can do is what they've done in California and this will come home to roost. They said, yeah, basically, you know, everybody who was a victim of slavery and a victim of systemic racism, 
course, none of those people who are actual victims are alive now, but that doesn't matter. They should get $1.2 million. Even the idiot, knee-jerk, completely irresponsible governor of California said, well, shoot, we can't afford that. Well, how do you think that's going to play out on a larger scale when it's for real and somebody has to stand up and say in front of the country, I'm sorry, we don't have money for that. You know, we don't have money. We're sorry, we owe you that money, but we don't have the money to pay you. That is going to engender a lot of anger. And what they should say is, I'm sorry, you don't deserve anything. Focus on the future, but that's yet another thing. Another thing is, <clears throat> this has been kind of going by. A couple financial institutions have collapsed. And you know, that's a very, very bad sign. That is like 1929, 2008, and several other times when we've had a real terrible upheaval. Uh, when financial institutions go under, everybody should notice. And, uh, you know, everybody's just kind of saying, well, it's not that big a deal. The FDIC will pay it. The FDIC, who has to borrow money from China to, to guarantee these bank accounts. So what, is that? what does that tell you? And the last is socialist fascist control. I mean, in New York City, where you cannot safely traverse anywhere on the subway, where crime is completely out of control, where people are, are weeing and pooing on the street, all the rest of the stuff, what is it they're trying to do? They're trying to outlaw things like gas pizza ovens. Because the climate, the psycho-climate agenda is, is just trying to make more things illegal. Now, I will tell you, I don't understand why there isn't a cogent government program that would encourage solar power. Um, you know, every, every house that could should probably have some sort of solar backup generator thing. Um, you know, solar battery array or something. That seems to me a lot more doable than, you know, pizza ovens making a difference. You know, I, I don't know how many pizza ovens are in New York City. I would assume it's probably several thousand, but I don't think that makes a difference in a city that's a perpetual traffic jam. Um, it's, it's absolutely psychotic. You know, they wanted to make gas ranges. You know, remember, they, they were trying to do that. They, they have kooks. They have actual kooks who come up with this stuff. And a lot of them are unelected, and that's even the worst part. But we do have an election coming up, and man, do we need to cross our fingers. This last four years um, of the, the Biden years has been a taste of what the next 50 years could be like. Just a small taste if we don't get out there and make some real electoral changes in 2024. So what can you control? And the answer is, well, there, there are some things you can do, and we're going to get into this deeper with Friend of the Podcast, but here's some things that we could talk about. How can you control your own destiny, at least in the short term? Now, the conventional wisdom and conventional gun guys and survivalists and preppers and all the rest of these, all the rest of these people will tell you to go out and buy weapons, and I've told you to do the same thing, too. I, I've told you, if you got you got the money and just as a nothing, just go buy an entry-level 
which is good as anything else, AR-15, and one of the Glock clones, and then buy some 5.56 and, and uh, 9mm ammo. That's If I had nothing, I would do that today. I wouldn't even bother... I wouldn't even bother to do research and figure out what the best... Is. I, I would go out and do that because I know both those things would fundamentally work. But there actually is a process because that, that may not work for a lot of people. Somebody who's 75 years old may say and lives in a little condo or apartment may say, yeah, that's that wouldn't be bad, but is that really my best choice? So I would, uh, I would basically say you have to start with what is essentially just an intelligence estimate, an assessment. Where are you and what is the most likely thing to happen and what is the most dangerous thing to happen? And when you get to the most dangerous thing to happen, you say, yes, hey, a, a nuclear weapon lands and it incinerates everybody. The, the most dangerous thing to happen that you could probably preclude or plan for is, is probably the best way to say it. And here are some factors to consider. Uh, is your area, by demographics, prone to riots? Is there a population that's going to riot there um, in close proximity to you? Or are you in the middle of that population? Whatever it is. So if riots are the worst thing, now arson can be a part of that, but for the most part, riots are, are mostly looting economic opportunities so you know what do you need for a riot that's one consideration I would I would look at uh, how close are you to a large jail and a prison um, you know I know a lot of people who blissfully think yeah I'm kinda out here in the sticks and it's okay and find out 20 miles away there's a <laughs> there's a large prison and what if there is a mass breakout or worse a mass release of these people in some sort of upheaval some sort of a riot gets way out of control uh, somehow some faction gets in charge of the prison and lets everybody out and let them commit mayhem and and the whole thing so what you have to do is you have to look where those things are and the old kind of a rule of thumb used to be hey you know you're probably pretty safe if you're more than a gas tank away from one of those well the way cars are nowadays uh, that's with electric cars and hybrid cars and cars can travel farther there's no guarantee that distance so I would look much more for proximity uh, walking or driving take your choice uh, do you draw circles concentric circles around where this prison or jail is hey how far can they get in a car in one hour how far can they get walking in one hour how far can they get walking in two hours? How far can they get walking or driving in three hours? Driving in four hours? See where you fall in those concentric circles. And you can then assess your threat. I mean, realizing that the farther you go out, the, the way the territory, the area that these people are going to flood into becomes larger and larger and larger. So you know you, you can just look at that and just see what is my what is my risk from something like that um, you also have to look at gradual decline um, defunding the police is what I would call a a, um, 
an example of gradual decline. 2019, the police went out and enforced the law. Uh, after all the riots in 2020 and everything else, the police have been financially constrained in some places. And in other places, they've just been ideologically constrained. They just they don't go out and they're not vigorously enforcing the laws. And that could get worse and worse and worse as it as it happens. And, you know, face it, law enforcement is under no obligation to protect you. That's that's even, you know, they they are not under an obligation to protect you. And what I see happening is they will protect public infrastructure, things like courthouses, their own police stations, maybe city hall, um, maybe the water treatment plant, you know, stuff like that. They will they will go after and protect because they basically they're on the fence. They're not going to come and necessarily do anything when a street gang says, we own this neighborhood and uh, you're all of a sudden subject to their whims. So that's gradual decline. Another gradual decline is access to essential services. Essential services basically meaning meaning uh, water, garbage removal, electricity, you know, natural gas if you're plumbed into that. Uh, stuff that people can turn off very quickly. Um, I know so many guys who, yeah, I got my guns and I'm not going to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Hey, the minute they turn off your water and your electricity and say, well, turn these back on if you turn your guns in, um, they, these, guys will be, these guys will be handing them over like crazy. After about two and a half, three days of listening to mom and the kids crying, if they're even able to habitate their house, um, they're going to give the stuff up. Same thing with, you know, food, the food supply. If all of a sudden all the supermarkets close, you know, remember COVID, all the toilet paper's gone and all this other stuff's gone. And if you've ever been um, in a hurricane-type situation, you know, it's the same thing. I got caught. I was on a job, staying in a hotel, and my idiot leadership said, hey, man, you, everybody needs to go out and buy food because the hurricane's going to hit us and there's going to be no electricity and no, no way to heat no way to prepare food or anything all the restaurants will be closed everything will be done so we went out and everything you know people bought you know boxes of crackers and peanut and jars of peanut butter and all the rest of it well that stuff vanished quick because everybody's doing the same thing at the same time and then the when the thing hit all of the ATM and Terminals, you know how you pay for your gas now? You just put your card in and you pull it out and it says go ahead and remove the nozzle. All that was gone. If you didn't have cash on you, you couldn't buy anything. Doesn't matter how much money's in the bank. None of the machines that could convert your money in the bank via your card. Um, it just didn't work, didn't exist, so you didn't get anything. You know, your card is just now a piece of plastic. So, you know, all of those things can be a danger, and you can mitigate them some to a degree if you think there's going to be riots. Hey, get a GI water can, put five gallons of water in it. Um, you might want to get a way to purify it a little bit, or, you know, get yourself a little tiny propane stove that you just kind of keep in a closet. 
Um, there's all kinds of things to do, and the preppers are really good at this. You know, they'll. I knew one guy who two liter soda bottles of water, and he had a whole closet full of them, and you know, pats himself on the back because he doesn't have to buy a water can. What whatever works, whatever works for you. Uh, there's ways to do that, but understand the closer you live to a city or in a city, the kind of the more susceptible you are. And access to services like I hey. Out in the country, I can just go and dump my garbage in a ravine. You know, I got one on my property. I could dump my garbage in there and burn it once in a while. It wouldn't be pretty, but I could do it. Um, if you're living on a street in a suburb or a city and three weeks worth, four weeks worth of garbage is stacked up at the curb and in the street and everything else and there's rats running all over the place and all that, that's a big problem. That is a much bigger problem. So now you go and you go, well, what what to buy? And I, I hate giving what to buy advice, but I'm going to break that rule and do it real quick. I'm just going to concentrate on a couple of things and watch some of these prepper shows or, or better. You can buy the cases of MREs, all, all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> weapons and ammo, because nothing will save you like a weapon will. And, you know... Um, and it depends. Go back to your initial assessment. If you're living in a condo or living in an apartment, hey, you know, a 7.62 NATO battle rifle or something equivalent to that, a battle rifle is probably not the best thing to have because it's going to go through wall after wall after wall. It's noisy. Um, it may blind you and deafen you when you fire it. Um, you know, it's it's may not be able to shoot it as fast as something else. So, you know, choose your weapon carefully. I always go with you should take the most capable weapon that you can handle that's appropriate for the situation. And I'll leave it at that. There's pistol caliber carbines, there's shotguns, there's all kinds of options out there. Some of which you may already own. Ammo, I wouldn't go crazy on ammo. Um, you know, are, are you really going to shoot a thousand rounds of 5.56? In your emergency stash, if you got a few hundred rounds, two, three hundred rounds, you're probably more than enough. <clears throat> now, this is not counting practice ammo and the rest of it, but um, you know, just think about that. Hey, you know, if you're out there shoot, if you shoot a thousand rounds in combat at the bad guys, chances are you're going to catch some incoming at some point. Uh, so, you know, you might want to do that, but again, tailor it to your assessment. If you're going to be surviving there for two or three or four days. Yeah, that's probably very adequate. If it's going to be weeks or even months, well, then you might want to adjust the numbers. Water storage we talked about. Even on Amazon, you can buy GI uh, uh, water cans. You can buy them at Walmart. It's, uh, you can buy water storage containers at Walmart. You know, all this stuff. Any of the farm supply stores have got them. So you can, you know, water is something you got to have. And this isn't this isn't bathing water and this is prepare food water and drinking water uh, you know you might be <laughs> you might be lighting a trash can and pooping in that um, but that's okay but that's okay you need water to live uh, you it's nice to be able to bathe and do all the rest of that stuff but water is for life uh, the other thing is everybody overlooks this there are two things I would do medical supplies on how to treat injuries especially traumatic injuries the kinds of things that can happen when you know you're out running around um, 
in a in a civil defense type of situation. I'm not talking necessarily about battlefield wounds, cuts, abrasions, um, all those kind of things. Anything for bleeding, you really want to be able to control bleed, treat injuries, control bleeding. You know, those are the those are the biggest things you can do. Also, you know, keep prescriptions and painkillers and keep a good supply of those on. Um, but you really want to concentrate on those those things. Um, go take a even a cheesy first aid class will be very very valuable as a matter of fact you know i haven't taken one in a while but i need to go out and take a first aid class just to get refreshed and everybody should do it everybody should do it have that have that kind of knowledge a lot of moms are actually pretty good at that because they treat you know minor sports injuries and all kinds of things that that kids run into uh so you know the uh, the lady of the house can often be uh, a real asset in all that. And again, it doesn't have to be emergency trauma surgery, but you want to be able to take care of stuff um, as best you can. And and uh, medical supplies should not be overlooked. Those are just the quickies. You can do a lot more. And again, this isn't turning into well. I'll buy it and I'll be safe. No, this is like you have what you can use. And, you know, how long do you need to use it? That's always the biggest question. Uh, your vehicle. Um, you should always have, and I violate this, but I'm, I'm going to change my ways, I promise. You should always have water and food in your vehicle. Always. When I was in Iraq, a, a vehicle did not roll out the gate unless it had a case of MREs and a case of water. And yeah, the water was warm because it was hot there and, and all the rest, but it's water. Um, if you've got food and water, because face it, ammunition and all that other stuff, first aid supplies, we, we brought that with us. But in the vehicle, you want food and water there because those are going to be very critical. Now, in the wintertime, yes, you want to put stay warm stuff. And in the summertime, you might want to have some other types of things in there. So you know definitely you know tailor your vehicle to what the season is and what the threat is uh, number the last one is you know kind of um, it's not really the last one but everyday carry what do you carry every day um, you know and depending on your job depending on a lot of things you can carry a firearm you know that's a very good thing to carry not everybody's in that same boat so you know can you carry a decent utility folding type knife something that doesn't look threatening no no rambo knife or anything or like a gerber tool anything like that uh, a small flashlight is always a good thing they, they even sell those things in little belt packs now um they basically um you know you, it's it's just a little thing that clips on your belt and it'll have a gerber tool and a little uh double a mag light you know the one of those little flashlights LED flashlights in it yeah that's probably a really good thing to always have on your belt I know that when we got stuck in the hurricane that some people didn't have flashlights and hey guess what when the power went out say la vie there are some on your cell phone you know and all that but uh, um, you know it's good to have a little utilitarian flashlight actually a little something to put in your vehicle or the little headlamp kits and they're cheap now you know you had 10 12 bucks and again, are these things that Delta Force is going to use to combat ISIS in Syria? No, but they're good enough 
so that in a pinch you just whip this thing on and, and you've got hands-free light so uh, something like that is worth well worth having um, at least in your vehicle if not on you when you're traveling you know take as much as you can so, you know take as much as you can sometimes if you're traveling uh, uh, aircraft it's not really the most when you're doing business travel especially in a group uh, a handgun is probably not a not something that you can get away with but uh, you can get away with some other stuff that looks pretty innocuous so one of the things I always carry is a it's it's a cheap little I think it was a, actually a little Walmart thing it's a little compass and thermometer it almost looks like a keychain um, combination hey I just need to know how warm is it am I getting how cold is it am I in danger of heat stroke am I in danger of hypothermia and kind of at least give me a thing of what direction am I going in I mean hey for like two two three dollars so what you know I, I put one in my travel backpack TSA has never had a problem with it there's no edges it's not on any kind of a um, you know illegal list or anything so hey it's it's something that's uh, well worth having Last is home security. Home security. Uh, that dovetails into weapons and a lot of other things. But, you know, don't think just because you have a home security system that when bad things start happening that that's going to summon the police and they're going to help you. Um, probably thousands of those things are going to be going off at any one time and nobody's coming. So you really have to, uh, you know, understand how, how to restrict entrance to your house. Um, face it you know that the couple in uh, st. Louis that had the AR-15 on their lawn uh, you know they could have hid inside the house but one of the things they would have had to do is hey how do I keep people how do you keep the borders off the ship and uh, that's something you think about what furniture can I move in front of doors that if it doesn't stop them it at least gives me a lot of time so I can retrieve weapons and get help or whatever it is I need to do home security it kind of it's it's not so much do I lock my doors when I go to the mailbox it's more like how do I defend this place you know some there's there's 10 people that are trying to break in and what weapons do I need and how can I how can I help prevent their entry sadly a lot of houses since they have windows that's how they're gonna get in but there are uh, there are some interesting things that you could have that you could deploy, um, you know. And and I can't really go into all of those because there's so many options. But um, I saw one that was called shark's teeth, which they put on the bottom of deer feeders to keep other animals away. And it's these sharp little nasty things that are on a metal strip. And I said, hmm, you know, a couple of those on a on a windowsill where somebody breaks a window and then they reach in that'd be a rather unpleasant surprise or maybe I can you know if there's a, if I'm upstairs I can put those things on the stairs where somebody doesn't see them and if they try to come up after me uh, they're they're gonna know something you know maybe there's some ideas like that that you can use so that's you know that's kind of about it and we'll go into more of this and maybe cover some of this maybe there's some better ideas if you have other ideas that you uh, that you would like me to mention, just go ahead and send them to kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or put them in the questions comments section, I should say, on Podbean, and 
you know, we'll talk about this. Um, and if you have any questions for our friend of the podcast, yeah, send them to the same place, and uh, I'll work that into the conversation. If I can't actually figure out how to record him, and I haven't even asked him yet, but but I'm sure that uh, he might do it. Um, you know, at least I can ask him the questions and then report back the answers. So now we'll get to questions and answers, my favorite part of the podcast. And it said, is the old-fashioned 38 Special Revolver still a good handgun choice? You know, I, I would, I say it is because I practice what I preach. My spouse, who's not a gun person, but has been around and kind of knows, does not like semi-automatics, prefers revolvers, just the way it is. I'm not going to change that. I, I know. I've tried. It's not going to work. But um, the golden, you know, the silver lining of the cloud is likes revolvers, understands them, and actually shoots them reasonably well. So a 38 Special Revolver is a very good, a very good choice. So I, I like that. Now, recently we had a shoot, and I loaned a family member who hadn't been able to practice for the last couple months, um, I basically loaned a uh, 38 Special Victory Model Revolver. You know, it's it's the Model 10 Parkerized finish and some, you know, reasonable hand loads. And he was able to play second in the pistol category with a gun that he'd only shot once before. And, you know, that tells you that the 38 Special is a good gun and that you don't have to have tons of practice. Um, it actually shoots quite well. So it is a very good choice. So I would say it's not old-fashioned or anything. It's a, a good baseline choice. In fact, it used to be the, in the 70s and even in the 80s, I'm sure, it used to be the de facto handgun choice um, for a person who doesn't shoot a lot. It's, it's reasonably powerful, very reliable relatively easy to shoot so good choice all right was the Johnson rifle superior to the M1 Garand or at least close to the M1 Garand uh, the M1941 Johnson rifle was something that a guy named Melvin Johnson who I believe at the time was a Marine Corps captain designed and, and got into limited production kind of I guess I don't know if he was a reservist or, or what but they they basically had a set up a company, and you'll see you'll see the what you'll see from his company is that there are 1903 and 1903A3 um, um, replacement barrels that are marked JA Johnson Automatics. So during the war, the company had some business. Um, they tried to they tried to foster this as a better you know the m1 grand like anything else had developmental problems the johnson came out it had this weird bulbous magazine that you fed with again you fed it with 1903 springfield stripper clips and it hold, would hold 10 rounds to, to the garand's eight the fact of the matter is you can shoot a grand a lot faster because of the, the packet loading of the eight cartridges versus the stripper clip loading of five cartridges at a time so the Johnson was kind of in the same boat as the SVT, the same boat as the early German uh, full-power semi-automatics, as the uh, AG-42B, all these ones that kind of fit. The Mauser, the five-shot Mauser clips were a great idea in 1900, but
about 1940, they weren't such a good idea at all. They were an okay idea if you had a bolt action, but they, they weren't that great of an idea anymore. Their time had passed. Uh, the Johnson, you know, it didn't have a reinforced barrel or anything. It, it uh, I, I don't see how it would have survived very well. Uh, also, the magazine, that bulbous rotary magazine thing it had, if that got dented, you'd be out of action. And the people who shot it, especially the light machine gun version, said it had wicked recoil. The rifles, I don't, I don't know. Most of the rifles out there were actually actually made in 7mm Mauser for some silly Dutch contract or something. And then when the war broke out, they, they were subsumed and, and uh, I guess, modified to .30-06. So. Uh, the Johnson, and you just look at the Johnson, man. There, there's just no way. There's just no freaking way. It's got the long, you know, straight bolt. It's not a tilting bolt. There's nothing compact about it. Um, you know, it, was it a kind of a cool design that a guy came up with? Yeah, it kind of was. But it was nothing that was ever going to replace the M1 rifle. So, consequently... Um, yeah, it's time in history past. I think the Israelis used the light machine gun version after the war when they were desperate for weapons, and they thought they were junky. So there you go. Uh, why do military establishments keep old rifles in reserve stockpiles for years and years after they're obsolete? It's just cost factor. Um, it's, it's not because they just want to keep them. It's usually just cost factor. Um, you know, and it's amazing. One of the things I always found amazing was that in all the Eastern European and former Soviet bloc countries, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that they had all these Moisens and PPSH-41s, all these World War II weapons, sitting in warehouses, uh, just sitting there. I, I would have thought they would have done something with those years and years and years ago. Um, and replace them with AKs because they were just manufacturing AKs like crazy. There was no reason that everybody and their uncle, whether uh, you know the reservists, the the war stockpile, all this stuff, should have they should have been floating in AKs, but they weren't. They were keeping these old things around, and that's why the Moise and the Gants, when they were coming over, they were thirty nine dollars a piece, you know. Um, and a lot of Western countries kind of did the same thing. Uh, Western countries meaning kind of a lot of third world countries. Hey, if you have 10,000 British Lee Enfields, well, you're not going to throw them away because then you probably have to replace them with something. You're probably not going to use them, but they're nice to have on hand. So they, they kept them for years and years and years until they finally realized, hey, this is, you know, there's actually people who will buy these from us. Even though we don't get a lot of money, it's still more than what we had before, so they get it. And, uh, you know, with the, the Soviet stuff, kind of going back to that a little bit. I mean, they gave all that away as much as they could until the point where nobody, you know, face it, 1960s, 1970s, nobody wants Moise Nagants anymore, you know. In fact, the North, the, the coolest Moise Nagant is the Polish M44 carbine that in the early 50s were made for North Korea. Uh, maybe, not early 50s, post-Korean War, I guess. A post-Korean War. They made them, and the North Koreans didn't want them. So those were sold. They were in really good shape, and they sold those, you know, $100 a piece. Back in the day, um, 
but very very nice guns very very well made but face it the you know after the korean war the moisin de gant was not going to last that much longer i mean you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't buy them <laughs> you you would probably if somebody gave them to you you might might take them but you're certainly not going to buy them so uh, it was kind of a fool's fool's errand, and the Poles got stuck with those. So it didn't matter because they were communist anyway. So it's not like there was any <laughs> any stockholders that were upset about that. Um, a lot of a lot of the Mausers, all that stuff. You know, so why did the Soviet Union keep Mausers and P thirty eight, all these captured German weapons? You know, I never understood that. I would have thought, man. And, and they tried to give them away. They gave them away during the Korean War. They gave them away during the Vietnam War. They probably gave them to any third world country that was friendly to their ideology. Probably gave all that away, but the fact of the matter is, they, um, you know, they had tons of those things. And, you know, the most common Mausers you find in the United States now are probably the Russian captures, which got left behind in, like, Ukraine and Belarus and all these countries that after the Soviet Union dissolved, they sold that stuff like crazy. I understand, and I don't know this, I saw this report, but um, apparently a couple of the importers back when we actually talked to Russia, and this is like 20-some years ago, when we, we had actually pretty good relations with them, they found a cachet of 1895 Winchesters and the Russians wanted like a thousand dollars a piece for them, and apparently the guns are pretty trashed. And so they they never came to a deal because the you know you'd have to sell it for two or three times that in the states to to recoup the licenses and transportation and all the other hassles that would go with that. And so it was just uneconomical. Uh, nowadays, if they wanted the same amount of money, it'd probably be pretty economical. But back then, it wasn't. And uh, so apparently they even had a cachet of 1895 Winchesters. So it doesn't really make that, uh, you know, <laughs> I go back to what I was talking about a couple podcasts ago where there was a cachet of Thompson M1A1s and they show it right there on YouTube. You know, there appear to be several crates of them, maybe even more. You know, these, these uh, places are still around in Ukraine probably Belarus, probably a little bit in the Baltic republics, certainly probably all over Russia. There's still these caches of weapons that uh, haven't come to market. And we haven't even talked about Venezuela, Cuba, and, and even Vietnam. You know, we're getting really friendly with the Vietnamese now. So who knows, there may be uh, Vietnam War era stuff, you know, because they used M1s, M1 carbines. There may be a whole bunch of that stuff that, that becomes available. If, of course, we get a friendly enough administration that allows reimportation of some of that. But that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And I already told you, leave any questions or comments, kbmakel at aol.com or in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.